moment where you just felt overwhelmed with joy or beauty. Just a moment in time where um, life felt surreal. Maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe it was the day of your wedding. Maybe it was just this ordinary meal with friends where you almost had an out-of-body experience of what a joy it is to be living. That moment is an echo of eternity. It is a rumor of the world we are actually longing for. You see, it seems that we are constantly living in the tension of two worlds. The world we find ourselves in, marked by war and chaos, famine and brokenness, and the world we long for, marked by joy, peace, hope, stability. We know that this world that we long for is not merely a coping mechanism or simply wishful thinking or perhaps resilient optimism because there are moments in time where we see the evidence of the other world breaking through. Even in some of the darkest of moments, the light of another world shines through. In a book entitled To End All Wars, Ernest Gordon recounts his journey as a prisoner of war during World War II. He was assigned to the Burma-Siam Railway as a forced laborer constructing a railway through the dense jungle, through the dense Thai jungle. He was stripped of all his clothes but a loincloth, and Gordon, alongside other prisoners, worked in 120 degree heat. They were constantly stung by insects of the jungle, and there was cuts and bruises all over their bare feet. Gordon was constantly surrounded by death. If a guard saw a prisoner lagging, they would be beaten to death in front of all the other prisoners. And if not killed by the guards, death came in the form of exhaustion, malnutrition, and disease. The goal of the camp became clear. Stay alive by any means necessary. Every man for himself. This culture bled into camp life. It became barbaric and hostile. Prisoners were fighting over scraps of food, and the poor and the, or the, the, the sick and the hurting would have their little possessions they did have stolen from them by those who were stronger. Men who were once brothers in arms had become enemies. And as time went on, Ernest Gordon felt himself wasting away. He caught a disease that left him paralyzed from the waist down, and, his, uh, from the waist down and he was unable to eat. Thinking this was the end for him, he asked the other soldiers to, be, to bring him to what they called the death house, where prisoners like him would spend their last fleeting days. But then, something remarkable happened. What Gordon would later call the miracle on the River Kwai. One day, as a group of men were digging, the guards came to count the tools to ensure that nobody was making plans to escape. And so they lined all the men up, and they lined up all the shovels, and one of the guards counted all the shovels, and he noticed one of them was missing. And so in a fury, he turned towards the prisoners, and he said, which one of you stole the shovel? When no one confessed, he said, 
If no one admits to this, you will all die. All of you will die. And he lifts up his gun to fire the first round to kill all these men. And suddenly a voice cries out from the line and said, it was me. I did it. And the guards beat that man to death. When the other prisoners brought his body back to the camp, it was there that they realized this was the one guy the whole time who was modeling the Christian life to them, reminding them of who they actually were. And it was in this moment they also realized, upon recounting, all the shovels were there. Not a single shovel was stolen. The man simply just laid down his life. And one of the prisoners recounted a verse from scripture they had heard of. No greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. At that very moment, one man's sacrifice changed the whole camp. Prisoners started caring for the dying, including Gordon himself. He had two men come and build him a new bamboo addition to the house, um, like a side piece of the house that everyone else was staying at, just so he could be with them. They came to him every day to feed him and to care for him. They dressed his wounds. They literally nursed him back to life. And that spirit began to spread through the camp. Gordon recalls it like this. Death was still with us. No doubt about that but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were all anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in the truest sense. These were gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life and fellowship. Now that would be a great story if it ended there, but it didn't. Knowing that Gordon had studied philosophy, some of the other prisoners asked him to, to do a series of discussion on ethics. Most of these men knew they were gonna die there and so they wanted to have conversations about how to make peace with their own death. Together, other prisoners came and built a tiny church and they would all gather to pray for those who had the greatest needs. These discussion groups grew so popular that others came forward with other things they had studied, including history, economics, mathematics, and science. Um, there was nine languages among them, including Latin, Greek, and Russian, and all of those began to get taught. They coined it Jungle University. Um, prisoners with artistic talents created their own paints using bits of charcoal and pounded rocks and began to create artwork. They even made for themselves a collection of artwork that somebody could go in and look at. 
A few prisoners had smuggled in stringed instruments, and some of them created woodwind instruments out of bamboo. And before long, a ragtag orchestra had formed. And one man with a photographic memory wrote out complete scores of symphonies such as Beethoven. And soon, this camp was staging concerts and theater performances. Their hearts were not only changed to each other, but also towards their captors. When they were finally liberated, they treated the guards who tortured them with kindness, even to go as far as forgiving them. Even in the darkest of moments, the light of another world shines through. How is it that a hellish prisoner's camp is transformed into an outpost of hope? How is it that two worlds are coexisting in one place, one marked by death, the other marked by life? Short answer, they lived into a reality they could not see. Or said another way, they lived by faith. We have been in a series entitled Pilgrims and Strangers, an anthology for seekers, skeptics, and saints. And today, we reach the conclusion of that series by getting at the heart of what this series is all about as we take on a conversation about faith. Now, in order for us to have a conversation about faith, we must come to a shared definition. I realize that the word faith carries with it all kinds of assumptions and baggage, right? No matter where you find yourself today, a seeker, a skeptic, or a saint, you have brought with you a definition of faith. My goal today is to define how the biblical authors view faith and then to work our way through a passage that I think most clearly articulates the idea of faith the biblical authors are getting at. For some of you, faith is merely a shorthand way to refer to a system of belief, right? People have all kinds of different faiths. Faith is uh, just a, a shorthand way to saying an uh, ideologies, a structure of beliefs. They have that faith, they have that faith, etc. For others, Faith carries the idea of a blind leap into the darkness. You take a leap of faith that there's not security or assurance. We just jump and hope for the best. Others of you, faith brings to mind a f familiar George Michael song. And all you know is you simply must have faith, 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 right? Wherever it is you are, all of the, uh, all of the biblical authors aren't getting to that idea of faith. They are talking about something, I think, entirely different. My favorite definition of faith right now, it might change in a year, but right now is this, confidence rooted in reality. That faith is confidence rooted in reality. The author of Hebrews says it this way, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, as we define faith, I think it's important that we talk about what faith is not. And I think there are some misconceptions about it. The first is thinking that faith is simply a set of ideas that we believe. Now, does the Christian faith come along with it inherently a set of ideas? Yes. But is that all it is? No. That is merely a reduction of what faith is. According to the biblical authors, faith may begin in the place of reason or in the intellect or in the mind, but it always, hear me this, it always moves to the place of living. 
there has been, I think, in some regards, an overcorrection to the Protestant Reformation um, in that people think that faith is just merely something you conjure up in your mind, a set of ideas that you believe, and it stays there. It stays in the intellect. Faith, brothers and sisters, is always embodied. It is always lived into. The second misconception is that faith is blind, right? And this is kind of the terminology and language that we use. You have to take a blind leap of faith. Brothers and sisters, that's not faith. That's stupidity. That's what it is. If you're just like, I don't know if it's going to work, hope for the best, and jump, it's like that's just unreasonableness, right? That's not faith. That's absurdity. It's foolishness. All that we believe, hear this, all that we believe is rooted in reality. So if we read the definition of faith, through those lenses, we can easily mistake that this whole thing is about wishful thinking. That faith is just like, I can't make sense of the world, so I'm just going to hope for the best. And this story sounds the best to me, so I'm going to put my trust in that. But that's not, idea, not the idea at all the biblical authors are getting at. Here, the author of Hebrews uses two words. Confidence, of the words that are translated confidence and assurance. Now, these are good translations. If you know me, I'm a fan of the NIV. I think they do a good job. This is one of those areas I'm all, I would do it a little bit differently. Now, who the heck am I? I'm not alone in this. There's a ton of other scholars who agree on this thing. But I think some other words would be more helpful to color in what the author of Hebrews is about, uh, is on about here. And so um, I think two better words for confidence and insurance would actually be reality and proof. So the text would read like this. Faith is the reality or substance of things hoped for and the proof about the things that we do not see. Faith is not a blind leap into the darkness, but rather a confidence built upon reality. Elton Trueblood, which if you're going to have a last name, Trueblood is like up on the top of that list, says this, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. I, um, I think that's a beautiful way of articulating that idea. Lastly, the last misconception I want to address is that we tend to think that faith is only for the religious. There are those intellectual among us who think that, you know, faith is kind of a crutch. You know, it's just how people make, help make sense of a world that's hard and difficult. But I, an enlightened person, know it is simply grasping after straws. You sound super smart when you say that. The only problem is the way that you live. Every person lives by faith. The question is not, do you live by faith? The question is, what or whom have you placed your faith in? All of you woke up this morning without a plan B if gravity stopped working, right? Nobody latched themselves to the ground. <laughs> Nobody anchored themselves in. Just in case this morning you woke up and gravity was suspended, you were prepared. Why? Short answer is, you have faith that the way the world worked yesterday is exactly how it's going to work today and exactly how it's going to work tomorrow. Do you know for certain that suddenly we won't shift axes and then the gravity all change? No, certainly not. You live every day as if that's going to happen. Now, I realize that's kind of a silly example, but it gets at the heart of what we're on about here. Everybody lives by faith. Everybody has a way of living they trust is leading them to the life they desire. Everybody. 
to bring about hope and peace and joy, to remedy the angst within. Everybody has paradigms for faith. The question is only who or what are you placing that faith in? Back to our definition of faith. Faith is confidence rooted in reality. First, confidence. When we talk about faith from a Christian perspective, our confidence is not in a system of ideas, but it's wrapped up in a person who is Jesus. Our confidence is not that our ideas seem to be the best, so we hold to those most tightly. It's that we find the person of Jesus so compelling and that what he said is true, we live into the worldview that he shapes for us. How many other 2,000-year-old documents do you read on a weekly basis? Likely none. Why? Because when Jesus went on earth, he spoke highly of the scriptures. He said that he came in fulfillment of those very scriptures. The whole reason you read the Bible is because of the person of Jesus. Our whole faith is anchored in the person of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the story. He is who our confidence is in. So our confidence is not in if we believe the right things, we'll get the right outcome out of it systematically like that. It's our confidence is in Jesus. Because of his life, his death, and resurrection, we have confidence. And so our faith is not blind. We're not merely hoping some poor Jewish rabbi from 2,000 years ago is going to help us out a little. We think that he, what actually happened in his life is true. We have reason to believe he rose from the dead. And if all those things are true, if Jesus rose from the grave and the things that he said are true, why wouldn't we put our trust in him? You must do something with the person of Jesus. We have chosen to put our trust in him or to have faith in him. So our confidence is rooted in a person. Second is this idea of reality. As modern Westerners, we tend to think that only things that I can see are real, right? Everything else is not real. We live in a materialistic, we have a, often a materialistic view of the world, that there's, there's only what our eyes can see, only that what we can hold on to is real, except, again, the only problem with that is the way that we live our life. Love is not tangible, Gravity is not tangible. These things, we are impacted by their forces, but you can't see these things. There's evidence for these things if someone shows love to you, but there is no certainty. All of these things are rooted in an element of faith. And so we know intrinsically that reality is always more than what meets the eye. Reality is always more than what you can merely see or make sense of with your own eyes. And we know that our, at best, at very best, our perspective is faulty. How many times were you sure, you were sure that you were right about something, and then all the facts came to light and you were wrong? Okay, everyone in here has always been right, apparently. All the stinking time, all the stinking time you think you're right. And how many times are you wrong? All of that's based on your own perspective you realize that reality is always more than what beats the eye. And this is the conviction of the biblical authors, that we don't simply just live in a materialistic world, but there are forces, powers, beings, wills at play at any given moment. And that to live by faith is to see behind the veil, if you will, and begin to realize the other forces at play. T.S. Eliot says it this way, 
To believe in the supernatural, that is, that does not pertain to our materialistic worldview, is not simply to believe that after living a successful material and fairly virtuous life here, one will continue to exist in the best possible substitute for this world. Or that after living a starved and stunted life here now, will be compensated with all the good things one had gone without. It is to believe that the supernatural is the greatest reality here and now. To say it another way, brothers and sisters, the reality we are rooted in is Jesus himself. He is our reality. Acts 17, super cool story. Paul is going and preaching the gospel there um, in a city. And as he does, he makes this appeal. He says this, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man, from one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being. According to the biblical authors, everything we experience, the only way that we experience it is because Jesus is reality. The, the, Paul in his letters to the Colossians says that everything exists and holds together because of Jesus. Jesus' life is so compelling, it causes you to reconsider reality. If this crazy rabbi from 2,000 years ago said, in three days I'm gonna rise again, and then did, you must do something with that. He clearly must see something you do not see. And that is the invitation of the biblical authors to develop a worldview based on the person of Jesus. Now, um, Mary Seely, in talking about faith, says this. I love uh, what she says. She says, faith holds on to both future realities, what is hoped for, the full consummation of God's promises in the heavenly kingdom, and the present invisible realities, things not seen, such as Christ reigning in majesty at the Father's right hand. Those who live by faith are so convinced of God's truthfulness that they stake their whole lives on his promises, showing that these promises are real. Thus, in a sense, faith makes future realities present and unseen realities visible. Faith is the key that unlocks reality. You begin to see the world as it actually is, not just how you perceive it to be. And this is why Jesus' teachings are so startling to us. Love my enemies. Pray for those who persecute me. Be generous with my money. Stingy with my body. Why on earth would I do any of these things unless unless Jesus sees something we do not see. That is the invitation. The author of Hebrews goes on and says this. This is what the ancients were commended for. A little bit of context about Hebrews 11. Um, this is known for those who have been in the church world any amount of time as the hall of what? Faith. Yeah, you guys said that so depressed. Jeez. <laughs> hall of faith. The hall of faith. 
right? This is the heroes of the story, if you will. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's building on an argument he's been building this whole time. Chapters 1 through 10 are well, like Jesus is the best. So go and read those. But as he moves into 11, he begins to stir up the community. Why? Because as we can develop from the other parts of the letter, this community is under severe persecution. Their faith is being tested, if you will. And many of them are being tempted to abandon their faith altogether because the heat has been turned up. And so the whole letter is a call from this pastor to call this community to persevere, to keep moving forward. And so he, in order to, to, to land this point, he calls back the great heritage of faith that all of these people are standing on the shoulders of. Now, he goes through and lists people like Noah and Enoch and Abraham and Moses. He goes through the whole biblical storyline highlighting these characters. Now, it could be easy to read Hebrews 11 and feel like you're totally the worst, right? It's like they get to this passage like, they shut the mouth of lions and they did this. And you're like, I'm just trying not to spend so much money at Starbucks, you know? Like, it can feel a little bit of this tension between the lives they live and the lives you lead. You're like, we're just trying to live by our budget. And <laughs> these guys are shutting the mouth of lions. I, mean, I don't know what your week was like, but I certainly wasn't doing that. But that could be kind of reading those things through rose-colored lenses, if you will, because if you go back and you read the stories, so let's take Abraham, for example. He made a ton of mistakes. Hebrews 11, yes, he trusted God, but he sometimes didn't too, right? Yes, he sent out and moved away from his home, but he also said his wife was his sister so that he could get out of trouble. There's that as kind of an issue, right? And, and, and all sorts of other things. Yes, he believed that God was going to give him a son, but at some point he takes it in his own hands and sleeps with his maidservant and has a son with her, and there's all kinds of issues and beef between the mom. It's drama. You go back and you read the story and you realize this isn't clean cut. It's messy. But as the author of Hebrews is looking back on it, he's looking back on it through a lens of faith. And he sees that although... Um, we, can, we can learn and receive from Abraham and Noah and all these other people. Their faith is encouraging to us, but it was never glamorous. It was always lived in tension. We love to quote the passage about they shut the mouth of lions and they were bringing down kingdoms, but the verse right underneath that, it's like, and they were flogged and murdered for their faith. And it's like you hold those things in tension. That just because... Um, just because you are abiding in faith does not mean things always go according to plan. You see, brothers and sisters, living by faith means we're always living in the tension of two worlds. The world that's on the way and the world that we live in every day. And there's pockets and moments of time where the world that's on the way breaks in and comes through. And there's times that the only thing our eyes can see is the world around us. But the invitation is to lift our eyes and see that the kingdom is on the way. This uh, thought in, in, in theology is known as the already and not yet paradigm. Or a little bit fancier word is inaugurated eschatology. So if you really want to impress somebody, just throw that line out and you're in good graces. It's essentially this idea that the kingdom in the life and person of Jesus has come and is coming. It's on the way. It's both here and on the way. It is already and not yet. This is the place that we find ourselves living, in between these two worlds. And we're asked to see the world that's breaking in. The author of Hebrews goes on. 
All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say, things, say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. All of these people that are listed in Hebrews 11 never saw the fulfillment of what was building. They had whispers, they had hints, they had guesses, but all of them died still holding on to faith. Abraham knew a seed was coming, but not when or who, and never saw that realized in Jesus. Moses had God's people and rallied them together, but never saw the people live fully into the promised land, right? There's all of these stories throughout where they get, they get tastes of the kingdom that is coming, but they don't get the full thing. We have the same thing. Faith does not mean you live to see it all. And reflecting on this passage, a phrase came into mind, and it was this. Would you be willing to plant a tree from, whom, from whose leaves you'll never sit under the shade of? Like, would you be willing to do something that you know you would never personally benefit from, but that would be a part of a story much bigger than yourself? A distinct memory came to mind. For some reason, I don't know why, me and Jake were coming back from Albuquerque together, and this was when the church was an idea. It was a seed. And we're driving in the car together, and uh, my wife was pregnant with our firstborn, Ben. And as we're driving... We're talking about the church that is not yet born. And we're talking about all kinds of things, things that we do, things we definitely wouldn't do, all of those things. And there's just this moment as we're driving through Isleta that overcome with emotion, we both committed to planting a church for our kids. His future kids at that point, my kids that were on the way, that we would plant a church for them, that we may trudge through weeks and years and, you know, hardships and things that we may not see, all so that our kids could grow up in a community of faith that we always longed for. And look around the room. It's happening. You're here. I was just a crazy 19-year-old, right, 20-year-old with an idea, with a dream. And so was Jake. He was a 20-something-year-old with the same dream. And here we all are. Would you be willing to plant a tree that you'll never benefit from? Would you be willing to give your life to something that would be setting up for a future generation? Always in the heart of Zion is we wanted to build a church that our kids would love to go to and that would love to bring their kids to. And so in a lot of ways, the journey of faith is just that. It's holding on to the promises that are on the way. It says that they saw them and welcomed them from a distance that all these people who are listed in Hebrews 11 never saw everything fully realized, but they held on to hope as it was on the way. And we are standing on, like, the, if Abraham never left, we would not be here. If Moses never obeyed, if Enoch never obeyed, if Noah, whoever, you fill in the blank, we would not be here. We are standing in the fruit of their obedience. We are standing in the fruit of their faith holding on to a promise not fully realized.
Now, he goes on to say that they realized that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Um, some of your translations may say pilgrims. And I love that idea. It's this idea of their exiles. It's that this is not their home. They're waiting for their home, but in the meantime, they're here. This has become known in theology as the exile ethic. All throughout the scriptures, the people of God are always framed as exiles. They're always living in a land that is not their own, looking forward to the home they long for. And this is all the images used in the scriptures, that you are citizens of heaven, right? That there is a, a future home that we all long for. And so the idea here of pilgrims and strangers is this idea of resident aliens. It means this. We love the places that we live, but we're never truly at home here. And I feel like people tend to be on one end of those spectrums. One, they just love the city they're in, and they become imbibed into it. You know what I mean? They become the city, and they become kind of taken over by the allures and the love of the place that they live, and they kind of get distracted about where their home actually is. They set up permanent camp here. The other half of people are just so ready to send this whole thing to hell in a handbasket, right? They're counting the days. You know what I'm saying? They're like just waiting for, waiting for all this so I can just get to heaven. And it's like, well, all these things are happening in the world, but who cares? We'll get to heaven someday, right? That's kind of the mentality. And that's not the ethic of the biblical authors. It is that we are to seek the peace and prosperity of the cities that we live in and also keep an eye on the kingdom that is coming. That we always have divided love. We love the place that we live, but we love the kingdom of God more. We seek the peace and prosperity of the place that we live, but we do not settle here because we know we are pilgrims and that we're only here for a while. Now, another thing that I want to say is there's like, there's a paradigm of heaven that is unembodied. What I mean by that is some people have a vision that like what heaven is, is like we're all these disembodied floating spirits and there's angel babies and a lot of harps and people are in this perpetual worship service forever. That sounds like some people's other place, right? If they're being totally honest. And some of that just like, that doesn't sound good. It sounds better than the alternative for sure, but it's like still not very good if we're totally honest. The only problem with that vision is that's nowhere to be in the scriptures. For one, there's definitely no angel babies in any of the scriptures. I challenge you to find some. It has more to do with Dante's vision of, 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 uh, of, the, of heaven or whatever. But um, the idea is that the kingdom that's coming is embodied. It is reality. It is not abstract. It is not ethereal. It's real as flesh and blood. Short proof of this is the resurrection Jesus had a physical body when he rose from the grave. And this is exactly what Paul appeals to in 1 Corinthians 15, that our bodies will surely be raised too. And notice that the whole arc of the biblical story is not us getting to heaven when we die, but heaven coming here at the end of all things. That in the, in the revelation that John sees, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down and settling here, the whole hope of the scriptures is that Jesus transforms the world that we live in now. That's the whole hope. So it's not just that beam me up, Scotty, we're out of here. But the whole thing is that heaven would come down and Jesus would rule and reign here on earth as he does in heaven. He would make all things new, not make all new things. He would restore the creation. And so that is the home that we long for is that kingdom. We were singing a song just a bit ago. 
that do you long for the new creation? That's what we do. We long for the world made right again by God. Well, all things that are lost and broken and ruined will be made right again. And we get taste, glimpses into that kingdom, but it is yet to be fully realized. And so while we wait, we realize we are pilgrims and strangers. That this is not, this is not the home we ultimately long for, but we get to enjoy it while we do. Now there's always, there's always a temptation to return to the place before. Notice what uh, the author of Hebrews says, that if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Abraham, at any point, could have turned back, right? And this is kind of the metaphor that the, the author of Hebrews is rooting it in. There's always a temptation to return to a different way of life because the way that we're living causes tension. Uh, it's, it's difficult to be a pilgrim, if you will. And so the invitation of the biblical authors is to not turn back, but that, that we would not forfeit all pilgrimage and go back to what is comfortable, but we would keep looking forward to the city that is on the way. And uh, the author of Hebrews continues with this, saying this. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The place that you long for, the scent of a flower that you have not smelled, the, the echo of a tune that you have not yet heard, these echoes of eternity, these rumors of another world are all pointing to one thing, the city of God. Heaven coming down. The biblical authors give this name a city it's called Zion. That's the future city that they're looking forward to. They would call it Zion, a place inhabited by the presence of God. And when we planted this church, it was with our eyes set on the heavenly city. Zion, coming. The city, this heavenly city, Zion, is both here and on the way. It is both breaking into our midst and also still afar off. The kingdom we long for is the place where everything is made right. Jesus says a few things. He says, first, this city is a city on a hill. The church, these people, are an outpost of the kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. We are ambassadors of a place, that country that is coming and here and on the way. And the church functions as an outpost of heaven, as kingdom people living in a foreign land, as exiles. It is on the way. You know it as you look through your newsfeed or in your own personal suffering, that things are not as they should be. But heaven, the kingdom of God, is on the way. And lastly, the kingdom of God is in our midst. It is breaking in as God is transforming hearts and renewing lives and new creation breaks forth in the lives of people. And this is all taste of the thing that is coming. And so here's your invitation, brothers and sisters, is to live by faith, to live seeing, to, be, to live into a reality you cannot yet see. 
and to taste its breaking in all around you. The invitation is to live between two worlds and to embrace your identity as a pilgrim. The journey will be messy and long and frustrating at times. But do not lose heart. The kingdom of God is breaking in all around us. Do you see it? This is the invitation of Jesus, that our eyes would be open to see reality as it actually is. That there, in a prisoner of war camp, the kingdom of God breaks through. What could happen of our city, of our community, if we were to become an outpost of the kingdom that is coming? We would become a refuge of hope, a haven of healing, a place of belonging, a people of love. What would we see breakthrough? I'll ask you to join me in standing. We're going to enter into a time of response. What this means is that we don't want to be people at Zion who just hear the word and do nothing, but we want to hear the word and respond to it. We believe that God's word is living and active. It admits us where we are, and so we want to respond to that. And so what that looks like is in a few moments, the worship team is going to play, and as they do, I'm going to invite you forward just to come and to open up your hands. And this is just a, this is just an embodied way of saying, Jesus, I hear you speaking to me, and I want more. Yes, I want more. That's all that it is. And as you do that, someone's going to come and place their hand on you and pray for you and bless that desire that you have for more of him. I feel a few invitations for us today. One, I feel like there's some people in the room who've forgotten their pilgrims. They've been making life super comfortable here. They've been establishing really firm roots here, and their eyes aren't looking forward to the kingdom that's coming. They're only setting up their own kingdom now, and the invitation of Jesus is to remember you're a pilgrim. Keep your eyes on the kingdom that is coming. And so if that resonates with you, I want to invite you forward to come and to respond. I think there are others of you who are in a tough place right now. And you have a small measure of faith. It's not much. It's a mustard seed, but it's what you have. It's what you can bring. And Jesus wants to bless that. He wants to meet you where you are. You are like the father who prayed, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And that's where you're at today. You just need Jesus to meet you more. You need Jesus to be merciful to you in your doubts and in your struggles. If that's you, I'm going to invite you forward to respond as well, too, to say, Lord, I want more, and I need your help. And there's lastly... There are those of you who are feeling the effects and pain of living in a broken world. That you long for new creation. That you carry this morning with you 
deep pain from the brokenness of the world we find ourselves living in. And you need endurance. You need endurance to keep moving forward. You need endurance to keep trusting, to keep believing, to keep following Jesus. You just need endurance. Would you come forward and we'd be honored to pray for you. Let us respond now.